Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Somewhere out there in the world, there's somebody probably working on something very similar to your idea and they're not distracted. And I think they're going to get farther. Your idea might die a short, slow death or a long, quick one. And theirs might succeed just because they're really engaged with it. Do you think that Michelangelo would have been able to paint the Sistine Chapel if he was checking Twitter every six seconds? There are rewards for sustained, focused attention. They aren't immediate rewards. That's the problem. I get an immediate reward if I respond to a text right now instead of later. That's one thing off my to-do list. But what we try to teach our children is delayed gratification. To some extent, we need to treat ourselves like children. We need to parent ourselves in this respect and allow ourselves to delay the instant gratification of multitasking in favor of the delayed gratification of an idea really well developed. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Doing creative work can be kind of lonely, and that's why we built the Unmistakable Listener Tribe. The tribe is a community for professionals to connect and support each other. Everything is designed to help you grow your business and share what's working and what isn't. And that's true whether you're a business owner or an artist. You'll get access to feedback, live conversations with guests, and so much more. By joining the tribe, you become part of a community of creators who all support each other, and it's completely free. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Visit unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe to join. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Daniel, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure to have you here. You have been on my list of people that I've wanted to talk to for quite some time. Uh, as I was saying before we hit record here, your book, The Organized Mind, had a profound impact and influence on the way that I have gone about uh, organizing my creative work. And it's something that I reference constantly. But before we get into all of your work, I would like to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things that you've learned from one or both of your parents while growing up that influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've ended up doing with your life? What a great question. Um, my, my father taught me to be flexible. Uh, and it's a, 
it's a lesson I had to learn over and over again. The The reality is that from a very young age, I always had things that I wanted to do and goals and plans. And um, I guess you'd say I I was oriented towards achievement and um, and producing things, whether they were musical pieces or um, fiction writing or poetry or science or whatever it was. I was always working on projects as a kid. And as I say, I always had goals for myself. And looking back now on my career, post-college, let's say, none of the things that I planned for myself ever actually happened. <laughs> I can relate. I, I, I'm a very bad, it seems, a very bad um, goal setter, a very bad predictor of how to achieve the things I want to ch- achieve. But instead of what I wanted to have happen, a bunch of other stuff happened. It was really interesting and a lot of fun, and I, I don't have any regrets. I mean, um, I... It's hard for me to say that I'm worse off or better off. I'm certainly better off for being flexible in that um, rather than narrowly being fixated on one particular thing and perhaps never getting there or getting anything done. I got other things done. Uh, I'll give you a good example. I had dropped out of college after my sophomore year. I um, had started at MIT and I, I loved being in school and I loved learning, but being in an intensive academic environment like that didn't leave me enough time to play music, uh, something I had done since I was four. And I, I wasn't really sure where all my schooling was leading me. Um, I, I couldn't see the light at the end of the educational tunnel, really. And um, so I dropped out and decided I was going to try to make a living as a musician. And my plan was to be a rock and roll guitarist. And to get to that goal, I I practiced really, really hard. I took private lessons. I went to the Berkeley College of Music and majored in guitar. And then uh, when I left Berkeley, I joined a, a succession of bands um, trying to find my way. And it, at, at the very first instance of all this, having worked so hard at becoming a rock and roll lead guitarist, um, I got an audition. I, 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 I saw an ad in a newspaper in San Francisco. I... Um, there was a big music scene going on in San Francisco in the early 80s. It was very exciting, um, more so perhaps than in Los Angeles. And um, I got I got auditioned by this band, The Mortals. Uh, I, I was called back twice. And after the third audition, they offered me a position in the band, but not as the lead guitarist. They, they had a lead guitarist who also played rhythm guitar. They wanted me to play bass, and I had never played bass, but they said they had tried for months auditioning guitar uh, bass players, and they 
couldn't find any who played melodically, which is what they wanted. And they figured if they could find a guitarist they liked, it might be an easy transition for that individual to move from the melodic guitar playing to melodic bass playing. So I was really distraught. Um, and I, I was talking to my father on the phone. And he said, well, you should be flexible. He said, you wanted to be in a band. You wanted to play rock and roll. So what if you're playing bass? You, you have the, do you think this band is good? I said, yeah, they're fantastic songwriters. They're the best band I've ever been able to play with. He said, well, so would you rather be the bass player in a really good band or you know, a guitarist in a band that might not be going anywhere? <laughs> and from there, um, dozens and dozens of times, I would find that what I had set my eye on didn't happen. I, I, in, in science, I was going to study visual perception. Music cognition came up as an opportunity instead. Um, it was just a bunch of different things like that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it, it's fascinating that you said you were driven towards achievement. I, I think you alluded to the fact that you're Jewish. I'm Indian. We both kind of grew up with these similar types of, you know, parents who, I at least from what you're telling me, encouraged, given that you went to MIT, I'm guessing we had very similar upbringings in terms of what our parents encouraged. And we live in an incredibly achievement-oriented culture today. He's, I was talking to my roommate yesterday who's about 10 years younger than me. I was telling him, I said, dude, do you realize at age 30, you've done far more than most people have done by 30 and you feel like you're not where you want to be? And I said, that's largely because you have a reference group of you know entrepreneurs and you know 20-somethings who do far more than the average person. There's something you say in the book uh, later on in the book where you say it. It's important to disconnect one's sense of self-worth from the outcome of a task. Self-confidence entails accepting that you might fail early on and that it's okay and it's all part of the process. And yet, I think in so many ways, that's one of those things that's easy to say and hard to do. How do people disconnect their sense of self-worth from the outcome of a task? I mean, you get into MIT, clearly you accomplished an impressive goal or a difficult goal. Um. Yeah, self-worth is a funny thing. Uh, the uh, the roots of it are, of course, in your upbringing and in family expectations and how you respond to those. Do you rebel against them? Do you try to please your parents? Uh, do you um, do you carry around with you even if you're rebelling? This sense that you need to be doing things a certain way. It's why we see. Um, from many families, uh, people have difficulty marrying outside their religion or their culture. It's if you know, if the culture frowns on that, other cultures embrace it. Uh, and I mean both macro culture and micro culture. It could just be the culture of your family within their religion uh, or um, cultural um, origins that that encourages or discourages so-called intermarriage. Um, it's funny you mentioned this because I have a friend who's a very successful Hollywood screenwriter, and we spent a couple of hours uh, together yesterday at Melrose having coffee at, at a nice cafe we like called the Earth Cafe. I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And, um, you know, this guy has won Emmys, and he's written for a number of um, top 10 and number one television comedies. Um, but 
he was complaining that so much of what he writes doesn't actually get done or made. And, um, you know, we, we had talked about the process. Well, um, when you're writing a script, I said, you don't mind that you might write a page and throw it away or a sentence and throw it away. So what, what's the difference if you write an entire script and it doesn't get made? It's all part of the process. Enough of your stuff gets made that you can make a living and feel some pleasure. But, you know, it's a glass nine-tenths empty or one-tenth full kind of a thing. Um, certainly as a writer and as a scientist, I can attest that the vast majority of things I write, the vast majority of things, experiments I do don't work out. But it took years for me to get to the point where I realized it was okay. And part of that came from an unlikely source, perhaps. I have a friend named Julia Fordham, singer uh, from England, wonderful singer-songwriter, who got me a, a book uh, called The Artist's Way, mm -hmm. Julia Cameron. Yeah. And that book encourages you to just scribble and every day sit down and just write nonsense uh, to silence your inner critic and just let it happen and let it come out. And it's very freeing. And we now have some neuroscientific evidence that backs this up. My colleague Charles Lim, when he was at Johns Hopkins, he's now at UCSF, conducted a really profound study in which he asked jazz musicians to improvise in a brain scanner. Now, you think about jazz improvisation, you think, well, that's really hard. What's going to happen when I put them in a brain scanner and they've got to improvise to a song they've never heard before uh, on this little keyboard they've got in there in the scanner? Well, I imagine a bunch of parts of the brain are going to be working really hard and there's going to be a lot of neural activity that we haven't seen in other tasks. Uh, but <laughs> he found the opposite. There was the most profound thing was that an entire region of the brain shut down while they were improvising. And it's a structure in the prefrontal cortex that's associated with your inner critic. Wow. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Hmm. <clears throat> so... <clears throat> You go from, uh, you know, this to, to being a musician. One thing that, that I, I wonder about as a published author myself, and this is something I'm curious about because nobody's been able to give me an answer to this and you're a neuroscientist. So I thought you might, you'll be able to shed some light on this. So you obviously know probably about the hedonic treadmill and how our reference groups change every time we reach another level of accomplishment. So for example, you become a published author and you know, you are now in a reference group of other people who are published authors. You know, in my case, I remember I was published by Penguin Portfolio. And before that, I thought, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. And now when your peers are people like Seth Godin and Simon Sinek, you can't help but think, oh, I'm the redheaded stepchild of Penguin Portfolio um, because these people have sold far more books. And I remember, I think it was my friend Naval Ravikant, he said, you know, you go to San Francisco, he said, if you feel, if you have like $10 million, you feel poor because your neighbor has $100 million. Um, is there any way to mitigate that? There or is. Get uh, off the hedonic treadmill? There, there is. And so what we're talking here is uh, partly um, uh, leverages your previous question, which about you know self-confidence and such. Uh, the, I think at some point when you've had a certain amount of accomplishment that's recognized, at least by peers, people – well – if you've had a certain amount of accomplishment that's recognized by people you respect, um, you may still be on some sort of hedonic treadmill, like my friend the comedy writer is, where he wants more. You want more. Uh, I want more. But it's it's mitigated by, to some degree, by the fact that yeah, uh, I've got some validation. I'm not delusional. I'm not here work working in a dark cellar, um, spending. 
a thousand hours writing something that is really awful. It may not sell. It may not become well known, but people I respect tell me it's good. That means something. And then um, social comparison theory is at work here because we are, uh, from a neuroevolutionary standpoint, we're a social species. We're primates. We evolved to live in groups and we find ourselves wanting to keep up with the Joneses. And it's, it's really interesting if you, as you say, no matter what group you're in, there's always somebody who's better than you in some dimension. You can be the richest man in the world, but then you look around and you see, oh, well, uh, um, there's other people who are not as rich as me, but um, they enjoy some prestige or uh, that I don't, or they are more admired or you know, whatever it is that is the currency at that point. They, they have more Picassos than I do. <laughs> and um, I think that the solution to all of this is to adopt a principle that was popularized by um, a great cognitive psychologist and economist, Herb Simon, Nobel Prize winner. And I write about it in The Organized Mind. And this is the principle of satisficing, which is um, just be satisfied with what you have. And I mean, a lot of it, it sounds simple to, to borrow from what something you had said earlier. It, it can be difficult to put into practice. But truly, if you allow yourself to go into an exercise of gratitude, to just take a deep breath and look around you and meditate on what you have and not focus on what you don't have, that helps a lot. Um, satisficing is, yeah, I don't have the best car, but my car is good enough. Or I don't have a car at all. Public transportation is good enough. Um, satisficing is a kind of a mindset. I went to visit the Dalai Lama um, a couple of years ago. Uh, he invited me to visit him in his compound in the Himalayas as I was preparing the successful aging book. When we met, he was 84. He had just published his 125th book. <laughs> so, you know, for, for a writer like, like you or <laughs> like me, you're thinking 125, and they're all good. And how uh, lazy are we? <laughs> you know. he, he writes them faster than I can read them. Uh, but, you know, he again reinforced this idea of gratitude. He spends a couple of hours a day just trying to meditate on gratitude. And he's a very happy guy. And every time you see a picture of him or you hear him speak or, you know, see a video, he's, he's laughing. He's very happy. He's happy yeah. because he has, he has what he has and he appreciates what he has. He strives for things like, uh, you know, understanding and peace and more spiritual things than, than anything else. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think to me, it's been this constant sort of um, never ending quest to find a balance between both fulfillment and ambition, um, which is to be satisfied, like you said, with the things that you have, but be ambitious enough to get the things that you want without constantly thinking you don't have enough. Well, part of it, too, is um, the, 
I guess the things you want could be divided into different categories. There's material things, better car, bigger house, um, nicer watch, whatever it is that, that people covet, right? Oh, there's this guitar that I really, really want, and it's so expensive. And, uh, you know, so-and-so has it. How come I don't have it? Uh, so you got this materialism thing, but then you've got this other thing, which is, well, what I want is to publish another book. I want to release another record album. Um, I released one last year. I have another one that I'm just putting the finishing touches on. I'm already starting to do demos for the third. Um, I have the ambition to do these things because without the ambition, they wouldn't get done. And I, I want to do them. I mean, the, 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 I certainly know a lot of great musicians who write songs and never release them. And of course, there are great writers who write and never release it. Emily Dickinson being sort of the poster child for that. Nobody read her poetry in her lifetime that we know of. Or if, if, if they did, a few people. She, you know, she was not widely known. It seemed to satisfy her just to write it. But she still wrote it. So this other category is, okay, am I going to do it? Am I going to work towards this ambition because it pleases me and it's fulfilling to me? And then the uh, almost orthogonal separate issue is, am I going to try to get other people to engage with it? And to some extent, that engagement is out of your control and my control. You and I release books. We're both with Penguin. Uh, Penguin um, has books that will do better than ours and books that won't do as well as ours. And um, they work hard to promote the book, which really isn't – I don't think of it as, as hyping the book. They just try to let people become aware of it. But then it's up to the buying public whether they, they want it or not. It, 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 you and I can talk about our work all we want. <laughs> yeah, you know, that doesn't make people buy it or and if they buy it it doesn't make them read it and if they read it it doesn't make them like it. Yep. <laughs> I love that. That's such a great way of explaining the entire book. I, I think that's true for any, you know, creative piece of work. I always say that, you know, jokingly say Waterworld is the worst movie ever made, but that doesn't mean Kevin Costner stopped acting because I think the movie sucks. Yeah. Or or Ishtar. Yeah. Um, well, I want to go back to to music in particular, because like I said, this is something we both have in common. Um, I played a musical instrument, and to this day, the benefits of that have made their way into my working life, even though I quit a long time ago. And what I'm curious about, well, one, you know, there's a couple of questions come from this. Um, how old were you when you started playing? What prompted your interest in music? Uh, what did your parents discourage and encourage? And then what are the cognitive benefits of learning how to play a musical instrument? Like what impact does it have in other areas of our lives? I remember sitting at the piano at age four and kind of plinking around. Um, I don't have much memory between ages four and eight, which I'm, I've come to believe is normal. I mean, between zero and eight, really, just isolated memories. And those might be false memories, we're now told by the memory experts. Uh, they're images that we have based on photographs or, or family members telling us what we did. They're rarely actual, real memories. Um, 
the say, you know, in the way that you have memories when you're older. But I do remember that at eight, I have a, a clear memory of being in a small rural um, northern California town, uh, an unincorporated town, but that had a good school district uh, during the heyday of the Pat Brown governorship when the school public schools were very well funded and this tiny little school district had a room full of musical instruments and a dedicated music teacher who would uh, go around to the three elementary schools in the district quite far apart. He had a lot of driving to do, but his job was to teach music to elementary school kids. And, you know, he came into our classroom when I was eight and he made an announcement. He said, anybody who wants to play in the band, get your parents' permission. And we have instruments. You can play whatever one you want. Uh, and a bunch of us did. And I went to the band room and took home a clarinet. Because my father had played the clarinet um, and just seemed, okay, I didn't, what instrument am I going to play? I didn't know. But that really changed things because I had private lessons with him. I practiced at home. By the time I was 12, he had put together a jazz band and he needed some saxophone players. So he switched some of the clarinet players to saxophone and he switched some of the tuba players to trombone and all this kind of thing. And uh, we played out in public in this small little town. And so from there, I was off and running. Uh, I, I just, um, I loved music. I, it made, it made sense to me. It brought me great pleasure. It, um, it, it gave me a feeling of agency in the world. I, I can do something that's tangible. Uh, and my parents, I think, uh, my father, although he'd played the clarinet, he's not particularly musical. He hasn't been interested in music most of his life. My mother played the piano quite well, and she still does. She's 86. She's still playing Chopin and Rachmaninoff and Wow. Uh, plays all kinds of stuff I can't play. She, she was very well trained on the piano. Yeah. Um, the, their attitude and the attitude of their parents, the grandparents, in, in a Jewish family, the grandparents had an outsized role in um, the ethos of the kids. And the grandparents saw, and my parents just sort of thought, this is okay. If, if, if little Danny wants to play an instrument, that's fine. But uh, you know, so long as he doesn't spend too much time on it, because it's it's not an important thing to do. It's it's like playing youth basketball or something. It's something kids do, but at some point you grow out of it. Um, and the expectation in my family, perhaps in yours, was that I would become a professional of some kind. And I remember in the '60s when uh, the abortion debate was first coming into public discourse, uh, the attitude in our, our uh, family was that the fetus becomes viable, uh, not in the uh, first trimester or second trimester, it becomes viable when it graduates from medical school. <laughs> Before that, you can kill it with impunity. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I, I can definitely relate to that sentiment. I don't know if they've ever said it like that, but there's kind of an understanding that uh, one of you will become a doctor. I, I remember a friend in high school told me his mother said that if you want me to go to my grave in peace, you'll become a doctor. And of course, he didn't. There's a famous joke about the, the first pres- Jewish president of the United States, and it's a, one of these long, drawn-out, shaggy dog stories that has a lot of fun along the way, in the way that a Norm MacDonald uh, story can. But the, the, the punchline basically is the, the president's mother is sitting at the inauguration in the front row uh, next to a member of the Supreme Court, and he's about to take the oath of office. And she elbows the the Supreme Court justice, and she says, "You see that that man up there? His brother's a doctor." <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so I, I have a, a couple of questions about music, in, in particular, uh, and we'll we'll start into organized mind. So, you know, like yourself, I had this very positive musical experience where a band director basically told me the day I picked up the tuba that I would make Allstate Band. And to this day, I have no idea why he said that, because most kids who are learning instruments sound like they're sacrificing animals. And much yeah. the dis- dismay of my family, I chose the loudest possible instrument <laughs> that I could. Um, and a couple of things happened that that I am just wondering about from sort of a neuroscience perspective. Uh I got really good really fast, and part of me wonders what role age had to do with that, because uh, I remember talking to Daniel Coyle about this, mm. uh, about musical instruments, and he said, he said, you know, are you going to be good enough to go open for Guns N' Roses at their next concert uh, at this age? He said, no. He said, can you get good enough to impress the shit out of your friends and family? He said, absolutely. So <clears throat> what is happening in terms of neuroplasticity in the brain? Because I have tried to pick up other instruments you know, years later, and I just could never get get to it the way that I, I did when I was young. That's one question about this. And also, the discipline and the sort of, you know, commitment and all those things that informed me as a musician, inform me now as a writer, but between the ages of 20 and 30, no motivation, fired from every job. So that didn't come full circle until 30 years later. And I wonder what role sort of the path that I've chosen. Is it because I found something I like doing that I was able to bring it back? Um, so those are two questions that come from it. Well, um, the, the neuroplasticity one is, is straight, more straightforward the, in that the primary mission of the brain in the first 10 years of life is to... Um, Take in information from the world, from your bodily motions, from your perceptions, um, things that you're told uh, or that you learn, navigating all, all the things that you experience. Your brain is literally wiring itself up. Its mission is to make as many neural connections as possible. And when you're a young child, you could be making hundreds of thousands of neural connections, new ones a day. And learning takes on a qualitatively different aspect before the age of 10 or 12. It's why so many children can effortlessly learn to be bilingual or trilingual and speak those languages fluently and without an accent if they learned them young enough. Music's kind of the same thing. Uh, The mission of the brain shifts after about the age of 10 or 12 from furiously trying to make new connections uh, to trying to prune out the unneeded ones just to clear clear out all the dendritic tangle. And um, so 
it doesn't mean, of course, you're not making neural connections. You and I are making new ones right now as we're talking. Anytime you learn something or experience something new, that's a connection, and you make new neural connections till you die. That is what neuroplasticity is. Your, your brain remodeling itself all the time. But it's different, which is why most people don't pick up a language after the age of, say, 12 or 14 without an accent, mm -hmm. no matter how hard they try. And in fact, when I play the, um, the clarinet or the saxophone, because I've been playing them so long, people tell me uh, that I sound you know, like I, I play them. I, I've been playing the guitar more intently. I took up the guitar, though, not until I was 19. I've been playing it for, uh, what does that make it, 45 years by now. Wow. <laughs> um, and more intently, as I say. It's, I, it, it's what I play every day now. But Carlos Santana told me once when he heard me play, you play with an accent. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and it's true. I, I, it's not a natural thing um, yeah. in that it, it, it kind of, you know, like, like learning a lot. I speak French with an accent. Uh, same kind of a, a deal. The, yeah. um, the course that your life took, I think, um, like any life, was shaped by, by uh, like any musician's life, is shaped by the discipline of music, the collaborative nature of it. The, the sense of at least a minimal sense of egolessness in that if you're playing in any kind of an ensemble, even if you desperately want to be heard, you have to coordinate what you're doing with what others are doing. Or you've got to be paying attention to what they're doing or you're not going to be able to play in time and, yeah. and play with the right timbre and all of that stuff. Um. And there's a certain amount of discipline. As you say, learning to play a new instrument sounds like you're torturing an animal. And so to get through that period, uh, and it's far worse learning the violin than, say, the tuba. Yeah, but, I'd imagine. Uh, on you and on your family. But, um, you know, think about it. You've got to have some belief in yourself. All these horrible sounds are just temporary. They're going to mount to something. You've got to have the discipline to keep doing it, to turn off that inner critic and say, well, yeah, this sounds bad, but um, I'm told I'm going to get there and, and I will. And so those are all important foundational building blocks for success in any field, not just music. And I would say that there's a parallel in athletics when you start, first start trying to play soccer or basketball or softball or football or you know, swim or any of these things, um, just to take a few examples. Um, you're not good at first and you miss the ball or, you know, you can't throw it as far as you want and you, you're kind of disgusted with yourself, but you get better. Most of us get better. And you get to the point where you're interacting with other people in productive ways. These are team sports, less so swimming, but, um, you know, that, that all plays into a life later that I think in many ways leads to greater satisfaction and, and greater success. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. 
Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's funny when you said the word egolessness, I couldn't help but laugh because my high school band director used to tell people, he said, yes, Strini is a tuba player, but he was a trumpet player in a past life because his ego is so damn big. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, I, I think for me that that feeling that I was going to be really good at something drove me because I, my seventh grade band director said, look, you can go be an extraordinary, you know, an average athlete on the football field or go be an extraordinary musician. The choice is yours. And I, to me, that was a pretty obvious choice. Um, 
before we get into uh, the concepts and organized mind, there's one other thing I wanted to ask you about music. And, and this came up just because I was having a conversation with my roommate last night. And this memory came back to me from seventh grade basketball that I hadn't thought about in almost you know 30 years. And it was only because of music. So um, I was probably the worst player on the team. I was the most improved player, which just means you're the shittiest player. And uh, for our final game, uh, this was, you know, back in the, the mid nineties or the early nineties when, you know, NBA basketball teams would come out to the championship, you know, like with set to music. And I still distinctly remember this, you know, being in the seventh grade gym with the lights off and, um, you know, getting introduced. And he basically had the team come out to the Van Halen song jump. Why is it that that memory has stuck with me? Like, what is that? Like, what's the impact of the music on the brain that that memory would come up like that? Well, um, memory is a funny thing. The, the the fundamental principle of it is that we tend to remember best uh, those things that were most emotional for us. Uh, emotional because they were surprising or because they were joyous or they were terrible. Um the most enduring and the most vivid memories are emotional ones. And um, was there something about that moment that, that if you were to tr- describe it emotionally, does something come to mind? You know, I, I think part of it was, you know, we were, we played this video game, my roommate and I, a basketball video game. And last night we said, you know what, let's just turn off the sound and listen to music. And I jokingly said, this song was made to play basketball. It's called Jump, for God's sakes. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's something about the energy of that song that just always reminded me of that, you know, that experience. It it just sort of lifts you up. It's kind of like if I could wake up in the morning and have an alarm clock, get me going, jump would be a pretty good way to get started. Uh, Maybe what you're asking is why the song jump reminds you of the the basketball. Yeah. Like, like, yeah. Why that song in particular came up, you know, all the memory, I was an average player. I don't have anything particularly impressive to to brag about or any memories that you know were so impressive but that in particular stayed with me for some reason and you heard and it, it when you were yesterday. you heard it when yeah. you were in junior high school yeah well so that that's a yeah that's the other another phenomenon that's now uh, i think well uh known if not well understood which is that music um is a tremendously effective memory trigger um hmm. In the way that smells are, which of course Proust wrote about. The the, the thing, though, there the the devil's in the details. Um, for a smell to trigger a memory, or for a song to trigger a memory, it has to be uniquely associated with a time and place. It has to be uniquely associated with an experience. So, um, although you've probably heard "Jump" many times since you were on the basketball yeah. team. Um, the, the first or most, um, emotionally laden time that you heard it was then, or maybe you heard it a lot then, and it was sort of the song of that season. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there are certain songs that'll come on as the Sirius XM sixties channel that I haven't heard since I was 12 and I'm immediately back in my sixth grade classroom or playing basketball with the, um, a little youth league team because that song is attached to my memories of that time and place. Uh Um, 
It wouldn't work so much for the song Happy Birthday, which I've heard thousands of times <laughs> in thousands of different contexts. It's unlikely to remind me of a particular birthday just because it lacks the uniqueness of Van Halen's jump in terms of its attachment to an experience. Yeah. Well, it's you funny you say that because I... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, oh, you mentioned something about being the worst player on the team. Um, yeah. I think that's an interesting... Uh, experience in that I think it works differently in athletics than in music. If you're the worst player on the team, your teammates are going to give you um, fewer opportunities to, I mean, they're not going to pass you the ball or they're going to, you know, I mean, in basketball, uh, if you're in football, they're not going to throw it to you. um, Your options are somewhat limited if your team doesn't have confidence in you. Although, even if you're the worst player on the team, you might be good enough in the position and function you're serving that it's still good for them to have you there. But music seems to function very differently. I, When I first started playing live uh, with the, that band, The Mortals, and then from then on, I made a pact with myself. I would never appear on a stage as a musician unless I was the worst musician on the stage. And I've never been disappointed. Uh, if I'm the worst musician on the stage, I'm going to be learning from other people there, and they're going to pull me up. And I've been lucky to play with musicians who are very generous, and they still throw me the musical ball, in part because they have to in a small group, you know, in a quartet or a six-piece. You know, everybody's got to do what they're doing or the song doesn't work. But people like David Byrne and Roseanne Cash and Sting and Victor Wooten uh, have very generously, um, in, you know, not not just let me play with them, but they seem to enjoy it. And I mean, I'm definitely the worst musician there, but it almost doesn't matter. Uh, it's it's like if you're if you're talking to somebody who um, doesn't have the linguistic facility you do, but they're expressing their ideas in a heartfelt way, that's what you're interested in. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. How in the world do you go from being a guitarist or a bass player in a band to becoming a neuroscientist who writes a book like The Organized Mind. <laughs> you turn left at Albuquerque. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, well, I mean, I, I, I was always interested in science. I, I didn't really go from being a, a guitarist to a, a scientist and writer in, 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 the, in that those were always part of me. But I mean, the simple answer is I, I went back to college after having dropped out for nearly 15 years. And I didn't stop playing music and didn't stop producing records. In fact, when I was in graduate school, I produced a Stevie Wonder record, uh, having never really left the business. But um, it was just getting advice from good mentors, taking, uh, taking their advice seriously and um, and then just following the path that emerged before me. You know, once I was in back as an undergraduate studying neuroscience, uh, I I enjoyed the classes. I did the work. 
I, uh, graduate school, I did a bunch of experiments. Some of them panned out, some of them didn't. And um, I just always consider myself not just the worst musician on a stage, but the stupidest person in a room, whatever the room is, and try to learn from whoever I'm, I'm surrounded by and, and somehow um, scaffold from that some kind of thing that I can do. Yeah. I can relate. <laughs> uh, well, let's let's get into this whole idea of the organized mind. Uh, as I said, I, you know, part of the reason that this was such an influential book for me was because just the sheer volume of information that I am dealing with on a daily basis between talking to people like you, writing, reading books of the people who are guests on the podcast and reading books that are of personal interest, the sheer volume of uh information that I'm consuming was so much that I had to find a way to actually make that information useful. And, you know, you start out the book talking about attention. You say attention is the most essential mental resources for any organization. It determines which aspects of the environment we deal with. And most of the time, various automatic subconscious processes make the correct choice about what gets passed to our conscious awareness. And yet, we have so much more competing for attention today than we did when you wrote this book. Yeah, well, it just gets worse and worse, doesn't it? Um, yeah. My, um, I, I, I would say that I've never been as organized as I'd like to be, but I'm more organized than other people. I'm just organized enough. Some of this gets to satisficing. I'm sitting here in my office. I'm looking at um, eight file cabinet drawers, and. They're more or less organized. They're, they're color-coded folders and tabs, and each drawer holds a different kind of thing. They're not as organized as I'd like them to be. I, I, I fight the temptation to go in and really think what is going to be the absolute best organization system so I can find things quickly. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's good enough. And um, I think taking that attitude to towards... The onslaught of information is similar. Do I have to know everything on Twitter that pertains to my interests? Do I have to read every comment on every Facebook post that I was engaged with or that I posted? Probably not. Um, I have to decide for myself what's good enough. And I have to, f so th that involves a certain amount of self discipline, of course, and filtering. What, mm -hmm. what will I let in and what will I let out? My phone is off right now. We're having a conversation. I know people who re refuse to turn their phones off. Uh, I, I went out to uh, lunch one time with a, a multiple Grammy-winning uh, record producer, very well-known, who I won't embarrass with this story. But he had two cell phones, and you know he had in, he had planned the lunch. So the two of us were out with the president at Warner Brothers, and we got nothing accomplished in the lunch in way of conversation because one of his two phones was always pinging and he was always checking it. And it was really irritating. And, uh, you know, I wanted to say, I'm here in front of you right now. Uh, those people are not here in front of you. Um, why are they getting the priority? But, you know, I didn't. Yeah. So this is, you know, I, at this point, I think almost an epidemic. I mean, we surveyed our readers and the number one issue that came up over and over again for people was distraction and, and to the point where we were literally just finishing up uh, a course called Attention Mastery. Uh, 
And it's funny because I, I literally was waiting to finish the right last section on workflow design until I had this conversation with you because I figured you might shed some insight on it. But uh, you say switching attention comes with a high cost. Multitasking is the enemy of a focused attentional system. And yet everybody is notorious for multitasking, even though we all know it's terrible. The example I always come back to is if you're a parent with a teenager, there's a reason you tell them not to text and drive because at 60 miles an hour, multitasking is the difference between life and death. And in knowledge work or in creative work, the consequences aren't that significant. And yet they're significant enough that they prevent us from accomplishing what we want to accomplish. Uh, you know, we've had Cal Newport here who's talked about deep yeah. work. We've had Adam yeah. Gazali here yeah. who's talked about, you know, attention. I mean, we bring everybody to talk about all these different things. And yet, despite all the knowledge that we have about managing attention and the endless amount of apps and distraction blockers and tools and life hacks and everything you could possibly think of, this is still a huge issue for people. Why is that? Well, I I, I don't think I know anything that uh, Cal Newport or uh, Adam Gazelli or, or Adam Grant know. I mean, I they I think they know more about this than I do, and they write more eloquently about it than I do. But um, I you know you talk about how texting and driving might be the la- matter between life and death. Um. I think that in a creative endeavor, whether it's a startup or whether it's a piece of art or something you're trying to patent, an app you're writing, whatever it is, it's a matter of life and death for that product. It really is. Somewhere out there in the world, there's somebody probably working on something very similar to your idea, and they're not distracted. And, you know, I think they're going to get farther. Your your idea might die, a short, slow death or a long, quick one, um, and theirs might succeed just because they're really engaged with it. Do you do you think that Michael Michelangelo would have been able to paint the Sistine Chapel if he was checking Twitter every six seconds? Yeah. That you know there are rewards for sustained focused attention. Um. They aren't immediate rewards. That's the problem. So we get into this addiction feedback loop. I get an immediate reward as soon as I see a new like on my Instagram feed. I get an immediate reward if I respond to a text right now instead of later. That's one thing off my to-do list. But um, what we try to teach our children is delayed gratification. Don't eat your dessert before dinner. Uh, or you can't have your dessert until you finish your homework. But we don't teach ourselves the same thing. We, I think to some extent, we need to treat ourselves like children. We need to parent ourselves in this respect and allow ourselves to delay the instant gratification of multitasking uh, in favor of the, the, the delayed gratification of, a, of an idea really well developed. And it's hard to do. Multitasking yeah. creates an actual chemical addiction loop in the brain that's as, as difficult to break as a cocaine habit. Doesn't mean you can't do it, but you're not going to do it without some real concerted effort, maybe even a system, God forbid, yeah. or <laughs> cognitive behavioral therapy or something. But uh, it's not going to fix itself. Just like, you know, you don't just wake up and say, okay, I'm never going to smoke again. 
but I'm going to leave the cigarettes in the drawer. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's that's one of the things we said to our readers is, you know, all the life hacks in the world aren't going to make a damn bit of difference. And what I found, at least in my experiences, was that it came down to having some motivation because I get diagnosed with ADD when I was 26. And I realized when I realized I wanted to write a book, it motivated the hell out of me to get better at managing my attention. Well, this this is really brings us full circle, doesn't it? Because, um, you know, motivating to Motiva- being motivated to do something actually matters. Uh, yeah. It doesn't need to be as lofty as as writing a book. Uh, it could be as as you know quotidian as as mundane as as wanting to grow nice flowers in your garden that mm-hmm. um, that will that you'll be able to pick and bring in the house and you know that. Most climates and most gardens, that's not going to happen by itself. You have to be motivated to water them and fertilize them and prune them and, um, you know, tend after them, keep the bugs off. There's some effort involved in anything that's worth doing. And in fact, we now know as neuroscientists that uh, the things that you actually care for and look after increase in value and meaning in your brain in your um, logical brain as well as in your emotional brain. And um, because this is to some extent a business-oriented podcast, I'll just make the point that has probably been made here before. This is the principle on which IKEA became a multinational brand and a huge success. They tapped into this neuroscientific knowledge that if you have to build something yourself, even if it's just like with a little Ikea wrench and it's become pre-drilled and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, building it yourself adds to your sense of value of it. Just Mm -hmm. like going out into the garden and actually working in it adds to your sense of value as opposed to, say, uh, you know, the the multimillionaire who just pays somebody to do it all and then – sits you know walks through it once a year or sits on the t- uh, veranda and and kind of feebly enjoys it without any appreciation for what went into it completely different experience yeah well let's let's wrap things up by talking about two concepts i think that really were what made this book so impactful for me. And this was externalization and systems. And this one line is one that I quote over and over and over again, because uh, you say, you know, having systems like key hooks, cell phone trays, and a special hook drawer for our sunglasses externalizes the effort so that we don't have to keep everything in our heads. That concept literally changed everything. And I used it to organize digital information. So why is it that externalizing this kind of information is so valuable? And how do we do that when it comes to knowledge work and and do it in our digital world as opposed to just in our physical world? Well, so the principle is that you've got a lot of conversations going on in your head all the time and a lot of things to keep track of uh, in this day and age. Most of us do. And so you want to offload stuff out of your brain that doesn't need to be there. We kind of all did this in the um, smartphone era, right? When I was a kid, if you wanted to call somebody on the phone, who a friend of yours, you would reme- you would memorize their phone number. My best friend in um, elementary school, Tommy Lott, I, I would call three seven six six seven one nine, 
I remember his phone number. I used to call him a lot. He called me. Uh, and um, back then it was area code 415. Now it would be area code 925. But I, I've sort of memorized these things. Um, the the idea, though, that, that the cell phone remembers our numbers for us, that's that frees the mind to focus on other things. If I hear that it's going to rain tomorrow uh, and I take the umbrella out of the closet and I put it on the door handle, I don't have to remember the environment is reminding me. And in the digital age, uh, as I wrote about and as I, I think you're referring to, I, I use my calendar, my online calendar as a reminder, not just of when I have appointments, but I kind of back appointments up. So for my annual physical to the doctor, he wants me to get lab work done. Uh, well, I figure I, I, you know, I talk to the lab. It takes him five days to process the lab work, and I want him to have it before we meet. And uh, it takes five days to get an appointment. So now I've got two calendar entries that go with the doctor's appointment. One of them is five days ahead of time I need to get the lab work done. So that's a reminder. And the other calendar reminder is five days before that, I have to go online and make my appointment so I can get in. Uh, yeah, I might even build in a few days slop in case, you know, something doesn't uh, work out. Uh, and so yeah. an extension of that is um, I've got a, a book chapter due in a couple of weeks. Well, I, I block out time in the calendar to work on it. I don't always do that. Sometimes something else came up and I move it around. But it's there in the calendar. I kind of live by the calendar now. I open it up in the morning and the calendar helps me figure out what I need to do. Because for the most part, I've prioritized my to-do list. And so if I've done a good job at that, then by definition, whatever's at the top of the list is the most important thing I should be working on. And because I've externalized all the other stuff, I'm not distracted by it, right? I mean, in the old pre-externalizing days, I'd have eight projects going on at once. And I'd show up at my desk in the morning or in my music studio, and I'd say, well, what am I going to work on now? I don't know. I kind of feel like working on this. And I'd start working on it, and I'd think, oh, but, you know, can't forget I need to work on that too. Uh, oh, and there's this third thing I should be working on. And all of that distraction uh, draws me out of the focus of the thing in front of me. And I'm kind of haphazardly moving from thing to thing. And then the phone rings and somebody asks me for something or an email comes in. Somebody asks me for something. Now I partition all that. I have a set time of day when I do my email. And if there's stuff in there that needs to get done, I just put that in the priority list. I don't – if it's something I can do in a minute, if somebody asks me a quick question and I can respond in a minute or less, I do it. Longer than a minute, it's got to go in the pile, and I've got to be deliberate about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's talk specifically about analog because one of the things that you also talk about, um, you say that one of the biggest surprises I came up on while writing this book was the number of people who carry around a pen and notepads or index cards for taking physical notes and their insistence is that it is both more efficient and more satisfying than the electronic alternatives now on offer. 
and you go into the value of writing things down. And it's funny because I start all of my writing in a physical notebook. I read only physical books. And, uh, you know, my friend Ryan Holiday, who has been a guest here, has actually talked about this system that he uses called a note card system, which he learned from Robert Greene, which he attributes to, you know, you know, many of his books being successful, even though there are thousands of note cards that lead to absolutely nothing. And so it didn't surprise me to read that because it's been reflected in my own life. And I found that these tools are distraction free by default. But what is going on here? Because even writer Carroll in his book, The Bullet Journal, makes a case for, um, you know, analog. And he said it's not digital or analog, but both. And what I have found is that in my experience, that writing things down by hand actually helps you get more out of your digital tools. Yeah, it's it, writing things down by hand engages a different part of the brain than typing them. Uh, and it allows it, those, those things to enter your memory system uh, by writing them down, the physical activity of writing. Uh, typing doesn't do that. So it um, doesn't matter whether you print or write longhand, but if you do it that way, it tends to get into the hippocampus or the medial temporal lobe, which is where you want it to go. Um, Otherwise, it might end up at the ventral striatum, which is where you don't want it to go. So if you type something, you may not remember it as well as if you write it down. And I mean, you can do, I often do both. I'll write a little note card and then I'll translate it to a calendar entry, but I keep the note card and, and I double check all of that stuff. So that's the simple answer. Uh, <laughs> and it's also, it's too easy if you're a touch typist to kind of zone out while you're typing. If you're writing longhand, you can't really zone out. And this is why, you know, Joni Mitchell, uh, songwriter, she writes, she has a typewriter, but she only, she rarely uses it. She writes her songs longhand. Paul Simon, mm -hmm. too, both of them. Yellow yeah. legal tabs. Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, and, um, you know, when he was writing the, you know, his his most popular comedy of all time um, up to that point. Uh, he and Larry David wrote everything on yellow legal tabs. It's not that they didn't have typewriters or computers or word processors. That's just what works. It's it's funny you said because even Cal Newport at the beginning of his book mentions Woody Allen as an example of somebody yes. who I think for 40 years never owned a computer and yes. did all of his writing on a typewriter. Yes. Uh, so I, I have one uh, final question about this, and this is for purely selfish reasons, because I'm trying to finish this module on the course about workflow design, because um, I was trying to think of how the hell I explain this, to, you know, which is at this point inherent to me, and I'm trying to like break it down for somebody. So let's just take an example like producing this podcast. If we were to take the concepts in Organized Mind and create a workflow for something like publishing a podcast, how would we do that based on your research? Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I don't know anything about how to um, make or pr promote a podcast, so I got no. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Like, it, I mean, let's just only... take an example. Uh, like, maybe publishing a blog post or something. Like, if we have an idea that we want to make happen, let's just use a, a general example. Uh, how you design a workflow? Because what I find often is that people are reinventing the wheel for something they've done a thousand times, and this ends up being a huge productivity drain. Yeah, I, I, I. I, I don't have any insight about that apart from the notion that 
when you're designing any kind of workflow, what goes down on your note card or your yellow legal tab or however you're keeping track, it needs to be something doable. It needs to be an actionable item. So, you know, the contractor doesn't write down, build a house. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and, and the contractor doesn't show up with all of his or her folks at the site and say, okay, let's build a house now. You know, you, 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 you survey the found, you survey the plot, you grade the foundation um, that usually involves tractors. You put down stakes, you pour a foundation. These steps are implementable and they're sub and, and to some extent subdividable. Okay. Today's the day we pour the foundation. Well, we need to contract with the cement company to come here. We need to calculate how much cement we need. We need to make sure the weather conditions are such that the cement will harden the way it's supposed to. The, the, the action items for a workflow have to be implementable, not these, these broad, unspecified, vague things. Yeah. That, that alone is, is invaluable, at least for my purposes. Um, yeah, that, but yeah, um, well, I have two final questions for you. Well, speaking of living by the calendar, I'm over time here, and I had an 11 okay. o'clock call. We'll, uh, we'll wrap things up. So we'll, we'll make this quick. Um, two final questions. One, how has your own personal definition of what it means to be successful uh, changed with age? I, th- I think the big answer to that is that for me now, success is if people that I really care about, whose opinion I care about, people I admire, like my work. So mm. I mentioned that I put out my first record um, in January of 2020. Um, I've been making music and writing songs my whole life. I put it out. Um, it was a, a, a something I'd always wanted to do. And I think I sold maybe 400 copies of the CD at shows that I did to tour with it. I toured with Victor Wooten and with Tom Brasso, great songwriter from North Dakota. I did some solo shows. I mean, I played around. I sold you know, 350, 400 CDs. Not not a success in any kind of commercial terms, although I broke even from the cost of making the thing. But what what really meant more to me than maybe having, if I were to have sold 40,000, what meant more to me was when Joni Mitchell and Donald Fagan from Steely Dan, Graham Nash, um, Victor Wooten, people whose musical Rodney Crowell, who who had been listening to my songs for a decade and didn't like any of them, told me, uh, Parthenon Huxley, another guy, listened to my songs for a decade, didn't like them. And then when I finally pulled this together, they said this, all of these people said, this is really something. Wow. And that's, that's all I need. The only other experience I had close to that was when I wrote, this is your brain on music which actually did sell well. Uh, it sold a million copies. And um, much to my surprise, I, I, I didn't set out to write a best-selling book uh, or even a best-selling book that it, it was inconceivable to me that it would sell more than a few thousand. But I'm, I'm looking at a letter on my wall from George Martin, uh, the producer of The Beatles, telling me how much he enjoyed the book. Mm. And, you know, if I had to choose between a million sales and a letter from George Martin, 
Yeah. I'm happy to have the million sales. They allow me to write other books. Um, they allow me to pay down a little bit of my mortgage. I mean, book, as you know, book writing isn't a uh, big buddy. <laughs> Lucrative. Yeah. But, uh, no, the letter from George Martin, that that's my definition of success. Wow. All right. I know you got to get going. So I will finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is to make somebody or something unmistakable? I think unmistakable is when somebody embraces their uniqueness rather than running from it. Whatever it is, it's different about them. Um, look at Bob Dylan. Nobody sings like that. Yeah. Or Neil Young. Nobody sings like that. People might try, but they don't. They're unmistakable. Um, Eddie Van Halen an un was an unmistakable guitarist. You're talking about jump. Da uh, David Lee Roth was an unmistakable vocalist. Um, Oliver Sacks was an unmistakable writer. Um, Einstein, an unmistakable science. They're scientists. They're, they're, uh, Warren Buffett, an unmistakable businessman. Their, their, their stamp is their own uniqueness, which is born of their own limitations in every case. Um, limitations that they, some of which they tried to overcome successfully, some of which they didn't. And that forms a kind of glue that defines uniqueness, unmistakableness. Mm, amazing. Well, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the books and everything that you're up to? DanielLeviton.com is uh, a good starting place. I have um, I have a page uh, at Patreon where I'm experimenting with uh, a subscription-based uh, model where uh, things that I've written that haven't yet come out, like something if I write something for the Wall Street Journal or uh, Rolling Stone, I can make it available to people a few weeks in advance, or some of the outtakes from uh, stuff that didn't get published because of, you know, space constraints, uh, or, or, you know, stuff that never gets published, but, you know, still might have some value. So it's patreon.com slash Daniel Leviton. Also, it, it, you know, putting up rare music stuff there too. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.